You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Scandariato with Red Knight Properties. And today we have a special guest here with us, Mark Hirschberg, who is the managing partner and CEO at Topaz Capital, which is a multifamily-centric real estate investment company. We're actually neighbors. He's headquartered in uh, New York City as well, but he's primarily focused on acquiring and operating high-quality, affordable, investment-grade multifamily properties throughout the United States, but particularly in high-growth Sunbelt and southeastern states. And the title of the show is called The Capital Flight to the Southeast for Multifamily Investments. So I'd love to hear Mark's experience over 2020 into 2021 now. We're at the latter end of April. Things are at least looking up uh, for us in the Northeast. Uh, but the Southeast has been thriving pretty much for the past year and a half, if, if not more than that. Um, so definitely want to hear Mark's investment philosophy and what type of deals he's looking at. And just would love to get a, a great macro perspective on the Southeast for multifamily moving forward for the next five to 10 years. So thanks for coming on, Mark. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Anthony. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, I've been you know, following the podcast for a little while now and coming on as a, as a speaker is really an awesome opportunity for me, um, both on a personal and professional level. So thank you for that. And uh, I'd be glad to get into a little bit about, you know, like you said very well, is that, you know, the Southeast is, has, hasn't seen as much volatility and, and, and headwinds as the Northeast. So um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about, you know, why that has been and, you know, kind of the trends that we're seeing that continue till now um, and where, I, where, where we anticipate things to go in the future. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, I appreciate your time and you're being very modest. Uh, you have a pretty impressive portfolio. So want to hear how you were able to grow and why you're targeting the markets where you're in. Sure, absolutely. So um, so a lot of, I'll just give a high level, you know, background to Topaz. Um, Topaz was founded by myself and my partner, Aton Friedman. Um, he's formerly Treetop Acquisitions. Now it's a multi-billion dollar private equity real estate shop. Um, and I started at my career in corporate banking, UBS, and, and then went over to, on the CMBS desk and went over to pri- uh, to Brick Capital, which was more uh, private equity and debt placement. Um, where I had the fortune of also doing some deals with my uh, bosses, which are now my partners, um, which is really an incredible story onto itself. But, um, you know, very much all of what we built today is around our mentors and advisors. And that's how my partner and I kind of live our day to day is texting, calling um, guys around us that are smarter than us and have a different perspective than us. So that's, that's part of, you know, Topaz's background as a whole. We were founded in 17. And so we're about four year old company to date. Um, and, uh, but we really focused in the last two to three years on building out the portfolio. The first year or two was really just, you know, seeing if the business would work, you know, the partnership, the relationship, um, and so on and so forth. So that was kind of our background into breaking into the multifamily space. Um, and a lot of what drives us is not, you know, we always take the approach of, you know, you could, you could change, you know, you could force, you know, you could force a deal's business plan a certain direction, but the markets are much harder. So we take a very top-down approach in terms of you know macroeconomics, then to micro, and then to the deal itself. 
Um, and that's really where we contribute, you know, consider, you know, we really consider a lot of our successes and attribute a lot of our early successes to our top-down approach of looking at the market. So being that as it may, we're talking about capital flight leaving New York, you know, tri-state area and going to the Sunbelt states. Um, this has been going on for a little while, but the I would say the the, the lion's share of that trend has only occurred since COVID. Um, and the reasoning being is that there's been a larger focus on, you know, outdoor space, you know, having more personal space. And granted, as you know, they're also called smile states for a reason. The Sun Belt, you know, has, you know, the terminology of smile states, which really is just another way of saying higher quality of life. Um, which is the focus of millennials. So I'll talk a little bit about, if you don't, if, if you don't mind the opportunity, talk a little bit about, you know, wh- where we've seen this shift uh, to date. Um, how does that Absolutely. sound? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So, um, so just as background uh, to understanding, you know, the capital flight that we've experienced from the New York tri-state to, to, to the Sunbelt, um, we should also understand that over a million people to date have fled New York and went to um, when I say New York, a tri-state, I'm encompassing New Jersey, Connecticut, and Long Island um, in the last, call it eight to nine years. And according to Bloomberg, almost 300 people are moving out of the area per day. And that rate has accelerated since the start of 2020, which was COVID, um, as I mentioned earlier. Most of that concentration is Manhattan and Brooklyn um, within the within the, within the the migration. Um, but that being said, the five boroughs were the lion's share of, of that migration. Um, one thought as, you know, once thought as the financial capital, I feel like now, you know, New York is still falling behind. Yes, it's gaining back its momentum. Um, people are getting excited to go back into New York for the next couple months. But, you know, New York is still seeing its, um, you know, still seeing the lag, if you will, due to the pandemic. Uh, you, know, well, you know, a lot of the big firms that we already know. Um, have already established large hubs. So your big Wall Street banks, your venture capital, private equity, financial firms, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard a lot of big names going down. And that's not for just happenstance. They've been all setting up large hubs in Florida and Texas primarily. Obviously, in addition to that, North Carolina and Tennessee have seen a lot of that movement. Uh, Many other like New York-based businesses, just to give you an idea, of open their offices um, already down there, but also there are new firms that are continuing the trend that are following in suit, if you will, um, and moving down there. So you're going to say, you know, the, the fair question is, you know, on the table is that, you know, wh- why is it so apparent to us or so many people to date that, you know, it makes sense for these companies and employees to move down to the Sunbelt. So, you know, one of the main things that we, you know, some of the main things that we hear from most of our investors and companies and tenants, um, which are all tied together, uh, is that there's substantially lower taxes, um, experiencing less competition out of the tri-state. You have more living space and more affordability and pricing and better cost of living for a lot of the tenants, uh, for a lot of your employees, which you know equals tenants in our case, and uh, fresh air and a higher quality of life. And I think that's that's been put at the forefront when COVID challenged our ability to um, be outside and be social and so on and so forth. So. And, and with speci- more specifically, I would even put a focus on millennials because millennials are major uh, uh, portion and, and stake of the of the job force um, of the working world, and 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 all the more so they're competitive 
uh, landscapes. So they come out of these, you know, grad school now is more common and they're coming out and saying, hey, I'll actually, you know, I know the higher paying jobs are willing to forsake that higher paying job to have a higher quality of life. So this is kind of the first time ever we've seen that mental state and that mental shift overall focusing on work-life balance as opposed to highest amount of income potential earnings so they could tell their friends, their family and so on and so forth you know, that they're doing well and they're achieving what they have been, what they, you know, what, where they'd like to be at this point in their career. Um, so that's a really interesting trend onto itself. Um, I think also investors, including, you know, Topaz, our focus specifically is on this trend, right? And we're looking to invest where these leading corporations and major institutions are relocating because the more they relocate to these areas where cost of living and housing is more affordable, the higher probability we have of rental rate growth, which is a fundamental concept, obviously, with underwriting. Um, so we have rental rate growth and appreciation that comes into play as these markets become more and more established due to migration mechanisms. And we think that's really where we like to look at our acquisitions um, trajectory is very much in, not where people are today, where are people going, where are people going tomorrow? Um, and that's Part of our strategy with, you know, talking about workforce housing is in high growth secondary markets. Um, so just to give you one example, you know, the Sun Belt's obviously a very large region and there are some areas which will naturally better perform than others. But we chose, you know, Jacksonville, Tampa and then um, and Melbourne as the high growth uh, markets within Florida that we think are going to continue to see high growth. Why is that? Because today they're starting to experience high net immigration, but we also experience think that that'll continue. Um, and part of that continuous process is also the thought of where you're going to be. Like you mentioned earlier, you want to know where we're going to be in five to seven to 10 years from now. We don't enter deals without knowing that, without believing that the runway on the growth and on the deals growth, on both the market and the deal level growth is going to, to have a runway of seven to 10 years minimum. Um, because we are long-term focused investors. Our investors are Two, over 200 high net worth individuals and over 12 family offices. Um, so they, they really look at things from a more long-term standpoint of where are the trends going and are they sustainable to be carried out in the future? And is there a runway infrastructurally also is a big part of this in making sure that they could, they could sustain the amount of people coming into that market. So that's where we kind of look at things on a very uh, top-down approach. Now, from a New York investor mentality to a to a southeast mentality or southern or even a you know a Sunbelt state mentality are very different. Um, brokers and relationships are different. People tend to be a little bit, you know, I wouldn't say slower per se, but they have a different style of doing things than in New York. In New York, a deal can be got you know on and off the table within an hour. Um, generally, in multifamily in the southeast, we don't experience that as much. Today, it's a different story because. So much capital influx, and this is for another time, but so much capital uh, funds flow has come into the multifamily sector due to lack of risk adjustment in other asset classes. But, you know, historically, you tend to have a couple days or a week to really figure out if a deal makes sense for you. Um, whereas, you know, in the past, um, sorry, whereas now you aren't really having that luxury per se. Um, so, and, 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 and then I want to talk a little bit, you know, go more back to the concept of, you know, why, why so much of this capital has been landing in Florida and Texas and why, you know, why this has driven these investor dollars, um, to get so excited so quickly. Um, 
And so I think some of those reasons are, is that, you know, there's large logistical distribution centers opening up and those have been funded very well. As you know, today, there's a big buzz around industrial. There's a big buzz around distribution centers, if you will. And that also has been developing a lot of, it's been creating, sorry, rather, a lot of jobs. And those jobs equal places where people have to live, right? So generically, you know, you're going from jobs to, you know, places to live and it's more in workforce housing, it's less of a luxury and it's more of a need, it's a necessity. So, you know, where we come in is we start saying to ourselves, okay, they need to provide more housing if there's going to be so much more of a job creation and net immigration. So that's where we, you know, we say to ourselves, hey, let's focus on these markets and just make sure that, you know, the development pipeline doesn't exceed where we're looking to place our capital. Because as long as, you know, there's a high barrier to entry on development and or lack of development, you know, housing units coming online for the amount of demand, we're generally find ourselves in a good place. So that's, that's how we kind of analyze our markets um, from a, from a high level. I'd also love to talk a little bit about how, you know, some of these smaller cities, which were historically completely neglected by uh, city city people, or or, or call it urban livers, um, and now they're becoming they're they're actually getting the attention because rent is cheaper, community family it's more community family friendly, you know uh, you know space is more plentiful, layouts are are, are generally nicer, um, and you generally have more amenitization. So that's something that we didn't see where we're seeing in the past. And I'll give you one great example of that. For Tampa, there's a place called Lakeland. Lakeland is like a kind of a, it's a city on its own right, but it's also kind of considered an offshoot of, of Tampa. And what Lakeland has seen is that they've seen tremendous, um, you know, the hot, basically all the properties in that area are above 98% occupancy. And it's not for no given reason, even if the property is not well-maintained. And that's primarily a function of that people are looking for they don't mind in a remote working world to, to get more space and to have a higher quality of life, but still have accessibility within call it where historically we want to be within 30 minutes of their office. Now they're willing to be within an hour, an hour and 15 because they might have to only go in twice a week, or maybe they're going in, you know, once a week or zero days a week. And that, and that's, what's really, um, you know, driving the trend behind why we think a lot of these smaller cities have become neglected pre-COVID, and now we're getting so much attention in a post-COVID world. Um, I also want to add that, you know, we see a lot of this, you know, uh, scare in the Northeast where there was a lot, very anti-tenant, uh, sorry, very anti-landlord friendly, uh, sorry, very anti-landlord policies passing that also create an inability to make money as a landlord in, in, in California and New York, just as prime examples. And people are trying to start to you know, starting to shift their bets accordingly. They're starting to say, hey, well, if we're if we're having, you know, uh, such hard time getting our, you know, getting our business plans done, but it's not because we're failing to do our business plans because there's a, there's a, a regulatory body constraining us, uh, you know, when cap rates were already compressed and return profiles were already tight, that's not giving many people in the Northeast the option and they're saying, hey, you know, I can't continue the, down this road because at some point I'm no longer buying, uh, you know, operating buying real estate to make money. I'm doing it just to park the money or just to carry it out. 
And there's some people that are fine with that, but generally those are family offices, long-term approaches over, you know, $500 million balance sheets. Generally it's not your average, you know, layman investor or your, you know, your, your high net worth investor putting in a hundred K a deal or what have you. Um, so that's, that's not a luxury everyone shares, but at the same time, it's something that a lot of people have realized those, um, you know, those restrictions and, and, and those pains that drove them out of the market that they so truly believed in right before the pandemic um, and before the and before rent loss passing, which was a uh, was a very um, uh, you know almost a very debilitating combination between the two of them for a landlord. Um, so that that was something we started seeing. And, you know, when people started shifting out of their focus, they said, what do we what do we know what best, you know, what's New York's sister of the South? And so most people, you know, most people said, hey, well, it's Florida, because a lot of New Yorkers tend, tend to have a natural connection to Florida, whether it's family, whether that's them going on vacations in Florida. Um, there tends to be a more of a connection between Florida and New York than there is with any other state. I think you could argue throughout the, throughout the Southeast. Now, that being said, there's also tremendous incentives provided by Texas, and Texas has seen almost as high net immigration that Florida has seen from New York. And I don't think that's by mere coincidence. I think that's because Texas also offers, a lot of New Yorkers have connections in Texas and family in Texas as well, but also Texas offers no state tax. They offer tremendous business incentives, and they also offer a very vibrant city that's not quite the size and the and the, um, and the, you know, liveliness of a New York city, but it still has the underlying fundamental, um, you know, uh, fundamentals that are required by a New Yorker coming out of New York to see in another city. So, so I think this trend is, is one, it's to do with familiarity of the investor of what they already know and what they're comfortable with, but two, it's, it, it's, it's, and I think that's Trump's one is that, you know, two, you're, you're, you're really pushed out of New York because you don't have a way of making money there anymore. So you're getting pushed out and that's, you know, making people say, you know, now we're already outside of our comfort zone. Let's, let's start to do our research now that we're outside of our comfort zone. So that's a really interesting and notable trend, I think, towards residents seeking properties in more suburban areas, weighing the cost benefit analysis of space against the distance of a commute, if you will. Um, and then lastly, I'd, I'd want to talk a little bit about, um, and then I'll open up to questions with you, Anthony, if you, could, if you don't mind, um, is the concept of investors closely monitoring this, this trend. As we head into Q3 2021, you know, as states reopen, consumers begin to truly stimulate the economy. I think we'll soon learn that if this is a temporary shift or something more fundamental in nature, that you know, this is the, this is our telling sign. This next call two to three quarters will be our telling sign. Um, we also have little doubt that many urban dwellers are seeking refuge in less dense areas um, that they'll act, that they'll eventually return to New York in a post COVID world to enjoy back to what made New York so incredible, which is the urban amenities, the city that never sleeps, the ability to go at three in the morning and pick up your favorite sandwich from wherever you want to go or pick up, you know, or go to the store or go out at night with friends. And that social setting that attracted them previously, I think will reattract them back to their city. However, the question still stands is how, for how long? 
So it still remains unclear whether the impact of telecommuting and therefore less weekly drive time to major infill, you know, employment centers, if you will, are going to going forwards will tip the scale for some and lead to permanent residency in the suburbs and exits for others. So that's something we're going to, you know, continue to follow the trends of. But I do think that it's there's going to be some permanence involved as well as some temporary fixes involved. So there will be a lot of migration, I think, going back to, um, you know, the New York cities of the world, the LA's of the world um, from these Sunbelt states that have benefited so tremendously from the in migration. But I also think there's going to be some permanence and there'll be some people spending their time half and half, you know, calling it, you know, half their time in Florida or Texas and half their time in New York and LA. Um, so it's, it's really just a function of, you know, how long it's going to take for New York to feel like New York again. Um, one and two, how long and how much, uh, how much are these states, these uh, residents have migrated to are going to be desired to keep them there. And that's going to come through the form of legislation. And that's going to come through the form of overall economics that are coming into play. And I do think these states are going to, are going to want to capture what's already been um, reallocated towards their state in terms of constituencies. Um, but the, you know, still remains to be determined how many of them are really going to stay versus how many of them are going to go versus how many of them are going to try to accomplish both during, during uh, their career going forwards. Right. And that was the main question that I have as you're talking that I could think of. And, you know, we're very similar to your philosophy, too, uh, as multifamily operators and, and owners in terms of the business climate. It's becoming and only COVID really ex- like I would say accelerated, at least for, you know, us as a company as well, our thought process of, okay, yes, we made money in the New York metro area and we still continue to make money there and, and buy good deals, but more longer term, we're, we're looking at other areas and are already invested in other areas, just as you mentioned, Florida, for example. Um, so it, the question really is, is how long can the runway last this, you know, net migration to the Sun Belt? It was a trend before COVID. I know COVID only accelerated it, but as you said, as things start to open up in our area, which they, they you know, are now, you know, coming out of, you know, Q1 of 2021, you know, long-term, you know, do you think people just kind of forget about what happened with the lockdowns and, you know, the, the anti, you know, business climate, at least for us as landlords during basically the past 10 years, if, if, if to, to be honest, in the New York Metro, um, you think people will forget that and they'll just come back or different leadership comes in or what's your thought process? Right. So I, I'd like to respond uh, to that by, by an old expression, um, which was famed expression and a quote by Edmund Burke, who always said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Um, and I think that's more so a fundamental idea going on with millennials. I think millennials are um, a little quicker to forget recent history as opposed to those who are older, um, who've seen maybe multiple cycles or multiple trends of this happening during their lifetime. So I think I think there's a little bit of um, you know a co- you know a dichotomy happening here. Of one, on the one hand. Um, people are not going to forget because their lives abruptly got upended. You know, their lifestyles got upended right over, you know, overnight, essentially, um, back in early 2020. And 
but you have to also take into factor that on the flip side, you know, the, you know, millennials tend to feel more resilient and tell, to, tend to feel like they're less touched. Um, and therefore they're going to say to themselves, Hey, wherever at any given time, I'm given an opportunity. I want to follow up on that in combination with, you know, them always kind of reassessing their lifestyle on an ongoing basis. I think more than older folks, um, older folks tend to not reassess their lives on an ongoing basis and quality of life where I think millennials are. So I think there's going to be a trend amongst the, the age brackets, if you will, between millennials and baby boomers and, you know, so on and so forth. I think we're going to see a very different trend going on amongst them. I think it'll be slightly bifurcated, bifurcated. Um, but at the same time, I think we're going to see, um, the focus on high quality of life continuing. And I think a lot of the millennials are proving, and if you look at company statistics of large corporations, uh, especially in technology, they're continuing to be very effective from a remote, working remotely. So if that trend continues, that effective work can be done remotely, I do think we're going to see, I don't think we're going to recapture the amount of people that have left and migrated out of of these large cities, if you will. I agree. And the technology component is crucial because it's only going to get better if we could survive 2020 for the work from home. It's new technology is going to come out. Uh, Microsoft's already releasing different types of add-ons to their existing platforms that make remote working more like in-person I don't need to get into details with, of that now, but who knows what it could look like over the past, the next 10 years. So I, I tend to agree with you. There's still a lot of runway in, in the rest of uh, the country. Uh, so really appreciate that. And so what, what are you, you're specifically, I know you acquired, maybe you could talk about some of the deals you acquired uh, in Florida recently. So we get an idea. Sure. Sure. Happy to. So uh, one of the markets we been, uh, we've been making a large bet on is Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville, we've uh, we got in before a lot of the New York money has uh, migrated and, and kind of um, you know uh, you know really shifted their focus towards Florida, specifically Jacksonville um, has gone back on their radar. But a lot of those acquisitions were um, very much basis focus basis uh, basis focus, but also return focus. So they were. You know, acquisitions we made um, on, uh, and I'll give you a couple of recent examples, but but over the last three years, there were acquisitions to do with value add or turnkey. Um, most of them were not, until this past December, were not uh, cash flowing new construction properties. Um, let, this last December, in particular, we actually did uh, get, in, get into a new development deal, um, 2020 build but with upside, um, a household developer where we saw an opportunity to get upside through operations and through rents if they were to operate it a little more uh, institutionally and professionally, um, as opposed to focusing very much on the bones and focusing very much on building a great product, which was the purpose of that uh, developer. Um, that deal uh, in spe- particularly was a fascinating deal because uh, we projected actually initially only 125 dollars deltas on the rents across the board, where we're now achieving 200 plus, and that's merely because the product is 
um, is in a location of North Jacksonville called Callahan, which is, uh, you know, which is essentially a submarket called 30, 45 minutes from downtown Jacksonville. And many people who, uh, like we mentioned earlier, who were in this closer to the city who had um, tighter spaces or um, had to be there because of work purposes, but now could be commuting only two days a week, have migrated up towards Northern Jacks um, and a little bit of, call it, if you will, your, your, your secondary pockets of, this, of the MSA. And that trend has been phenomenal for us. Um, we've been sitting at 100% occupancy. Um, we also had a storage component to that deal where it was self-storage on site and that self-storage was not being rented. And, and the, the developer, the owner, you know, had a hard time understanding how to get them rented. Um, and during our turnover, um, sorry, takeover rather, um, we learned that there is a demand. Um, it's just how you get in front of those people. And so we, uh, the first time ever, we took out a massive billboard on the way up because everyone in, in the country of, if you will, of Jacksonville and the more country feel areas um, actually spent a lot of time in their cars. And that drove a lot of leasing traffic to our property, one and two to the storage units on the property. So that that was really a phenomenal and, uh, you know, very um, unexpected upside that we played in that deal, um, which obviously is something we're very pleased with today. We also uh, learned during that process that um, it's critically important to understand a municipality. Real estate is very much an international and global business, but it's also very much a local business. And even though we were very involved and recognized by the city of Jacksonville, we're technically not within the city's limits and therefore we're dealt with a whole new city. So it was also learning about a small town city, understanding of the dynamics that go get involved and understanding that sometimes you have to, you know, forfeit some profit in order to understand that there's, uh, you know, relationships in these cities that can move mountains as opposed to larger cities where things are more uh, set in stone and it's harder to pull things off of the city and, and get to your business plan. So there's, there's a lot of kind of, there's a tremendous learning curve there for, uh, for myself and our, and our team at Topaz, specifically our asset management team. Um, Aton and Jared did a phenomenal job um, getting that, understood by the company. And, and now we uh, are very fortunate to, you know, be looking at a couple uh, new deals, not too far away, um, you know, as a desire to continue that footprint in call it the more outskirts of within the MSA um, outskirt locations of the MSA. Excellent. Excellent. Look forward to seeing what you're up to. And Mark is very active on LinkedIn and social media and his company Topaz Capital so feel free to reach out to Mark. How can people find you and learn more about you and your company? Sure. So we're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and uh, um, I think that, and LinkedIn. And on all four platforms, uh, you'll find us under Topaz Capital, Topaz Capital Group. Um, on there, we post all our latest news. Um, we could also get on our e-newsletter through our website. Um, and part of that process has been really cool because We've also integrated uh, Juniper Square, which has been doing our investment management. So everything's been streamlined 
um, on the investment management side, whereby we have high tech using portal entry through our website. And then we also integrated our e-newsletter to that technology to make sure that our contacts are being up to date on what's going on in the industry around us. So what our competitors are doing and how they're doing it. Um, so that's been really incredible. And I, I really hope that, uh, you know, you can follow us and, uh, you know, and continue to uh, chime in actually on, you know, comment on our posts and, uh, you know, get involved with our thought processes because we're only as smart as the challengers we have next to us. You know, many times it sounds like a great concept until you find out that there's might be some challenges and some headwinds that you've yet to think of, um, you're not going to be as effective. So we always welcome and encourage as much uh, feedback as we can get um, from from our audience, one, and two, uh, specifically from our investors and prospective investors. Excellent. Mark Hirschberg with Topaz Capital. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you liked what you heard, Today, if you could please give us a rating and review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. It would help Mark and myself get our message out to a greater audience. So really appreciate that and look forward to having you on again, Mark. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks so much for hosting. I continue to be inspired by what you do and how you do it. So um, hopefully we can continue to inspire each other. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting a lot done together. I mean, we're in the same space. So I think it's only a matter of time until – we, you know, we cross paths also in the professional realm. Sounds good, Mark. Take care. All the best. Thank you very much.